The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to the book of John again, chapter 17. We're continuing our study now of what some call the high priestly prayer. Others call the real Lord's prayer. This is Jesus' final communication with God the Father, with his disciples, before he enters the garden and has that final conversation with his father about the cup. John chapter 17. We've made our way to verses 4 and 5. Let me read those just to set them in our minds. John chapter 17, verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I love officiating weddings. It's one of my favorite parts of being a pastor. I love officiating weddings for a lot of reasons, but probably my favorite reason is because, quite honestly, I have the best seat in the house. I get to stare right into the eyes of that groom and his bride and see the smiles and the glances and the winks and the tears and the stroking of the hands and so on and on. I I could go on about even Husky and Megan just a few months ago and um, just watching you Commit your lives to each other. I love doing weddings. During the ceremony, though, it's inevitable in every wedding I've ever officiated that at some point or at multiple points, the couple looks to each other and exchanges a few words. They say a few things. It's usually during that that typical goo-goo-eye song. You know what that is? Where they have that song typically after the rings and they face each other and everyone just kind of listens to the song and watches them give goo-goo-eyes to each other and they kind of whisper things back and forth. That's a wonderful time. One of the questions I get asked most at a wedding reception is this. What were they saying? Now, I must confess, I rarely hear what they sing. I'm half deaf, okay? Which doesn't help. And also, they're whispering, so I don't hear what they're saying. Every now and then, you have the, the guy who's occasionally just clueless and just says, I love you. Now, we know that's why you're here. We know. It does raise a curious question. What do you say to someone when you're about to spend the rest of your life with them? Those of us who are married remember that moment where we're standing on that stage before God and witnesses. And we have those final glances and those final little whispers with one another. What do you say? Well, as much as you'd like to hear about what is said between the couple at a wedding ceremony, think about this. Jesus is about to re-enter heaven. His mission and his work on earth have come to almost the very end. But unlike one standing at, at a wedding in unbelievable, unimaginable, indescribable joy. This is not a wedding ceremony. He is staring at his impending death, his torturous suffering, and the pain he's about to endure. 
After instructing the disciples, he closes their time in prayer. And it's almost like watching that moment where we're curious at a wedding ceremony, but this is unlike that in the same dimension. We get to witness or hear the witness of John record what Jesus says to the Father as he's about to die. Now, if I told you Jesus had a final prayer with his Father about the world, about the disciples, about future Christians, about his own reestablishment to the glory of heaven, wouldn't you be interested in that? And the answer should be, well, yeah, I'd love to hear that. That's what we have here. This is intriguingly interesting, this whole conversation. We get to eavesdrop on inner Trinitarian conversation. It's rare. It's the longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus. The first five verses of this prayer are concern about his and the Father's relationship being finished in the way that God the Father intended and the Son had been faithful to accomplish. Here in verses 4 and 5, he reveals his own heart, what he thinks, and even what he wants. Here we find, now think about this, here we listen to and we find and we discover the incarnate God and creator of the universe speaking of, of his dying. Now just noodle on that a minute. God in flesh, is speaking to God in heaven about God dying. It's almost hard to say. I remember, I've told you before, in my, my uh, ordination, I was asked by John MacArthur, did God die on the cross? And I found myself not wanting to say yes. I mean, it's awkward. Who wants to say that God died? So I just kind of said, well, Jesus is God and Jesus died, so yes. Which is why we come to that epic and my favorite hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, what? Just die for me. Well, that moment of Jesus processing of that thought is where we are this morning. I mean, this is... This is an interesting passage because I want to tell you, there are a lot of passages we can go to and the application is so easy and it's so practical and it's so horizontal. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How do you apply that? Well, that one's hard. You're quick to hear, you're slow to speak, and you're slow to anger. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. How hard is that? Well, you forgive others. The practical application of that is amazing. I want to invite you into a different kind of practical application this morning. We're not going to take a lot away from this for ourselves. There's, a, there's one massive lesson that we can. But mostly, we're just going to stand in awe and wonder and worship at the Trinity's conversation within himself. And our, our practical application should be no more and no less than hallelujah, what a Savior. Our practical application is okay if it's just wow and worship. This section is the most personal, the most reflective, the most otherworldly part of the prayer. As I've said over and over, you and I could never pray this prayer. 
this is unique to only one human who was God who could ever pray this. In these two verses, we're just going to outline it very simply. Two personal considerations of the Savior facing death. Two personal considerations of the Savior facing death. How would Jesus respond when he talked to God, the Father, about his dying? Well, the first thing he gives us, number one, is in verse four, a faithful review. This is incredible, a faithful review. And if there's any practical takeaway for you and me, it's right here, a faithful review. Verse four, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now just know this, Jesus coming into the the throne room of God the Father, coming into the ultimate accountability, has to reflect on his faithfulness. And let's say it this way, genuine, authentic, real prayer always brings us to ultimate accountability, doesn't it? To come into the presence of God is, is to let go of every facade, is to let go of, of every pretending notions, to let go of every presumption and to be real and authentic. Something happens when any person, even the Lord Jesus, when any person prays, everything becomes revealed. I think the worst thing that you can find in your own heart is when you pray with an unreal sense of yourself. To come into God's presence is to have ultimate accountability. You want a very simple, very quick, very practical way to not sin in the moment of temptation? Pray. If you pray in the moment of temptation, it's very difficult to go ahead and give in to that temptation. Because what prayer is, is acknowledging what's already there in the first place, which is God's omniscience, omnipresence, His awareness, His care. That's where Jesus starts. I glorified you on the earth. Obviously, when he's talking to God about finishing this final lap, he measures himself against his task. He measures himself against what God required of him, just as you and I should. Jesus faces the Father, and his heart defaults to the accountability he has to be faithful to the work that's been assigned to him, just as you and I can. There's an important parallel here that explains exactly what Jesus is saying. Glorifying the Father, he says in that first phrase. I have glorified you on the earth. What does that mean? I have glorified you on the earth. How? Next phrase. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. There's a, a, a participle there in the Greek which explains. The second phrase explains the first phrase. I have glorified you on the earth. How, Jesus? By accomplishing the work which God gave him to do. Now, in order to really get a a grasp of this, so central to the person of Christ, I want us to take a little tour. Turn back to John chapter 1, the very beginning of his gospel. This idea of glorifying God, demonstrating God's glory by his obedience and by his moral choices, by his ethical behavior, by his worship, we see from the very beginning... John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word, that is Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh, became a human, and dwelt among us, and we saw his what? Glory. What kind of glory? Glory is of the only begotten from God, full of grace and truth. There's part of what Jesus did to accomplish the work that he now says in John chapter 17, he's done. 
He demonstrated grace and truth. Chapter 2, verse 11. This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. I love this. And his disciples believed in him. To see the glory of God in Christ, which is to see his obedience, his character, his worship, his love for the Father, is the motivation to believe in him. Jump over to John 14 for a moment. Remember this discussion that Peter is having with, excuse me, that Jesus is having with Philip? John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you? uh, How long have I been with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. We could just park right there to see God. In flesh, Jesus is to see God the Father in heaven. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. What was Jesus' obedience? It was the Father doing his works in the Son. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. I remember us when we studied, remember when we studied this, we, were, we, were, we spent a considerable amount of time saying that Jesus' obedience was a signpost that points his relationship, points us to the fact that his relationship with God the Father is unique to anyone else who's ever lived. Believe because of what I've done. Nobody does what I do. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. He's talking about his ministry of telling people about how to come to the right relationship with God. You'll do a greater work because you have the gospel, you have the full message of the cross. We went back, John 12, 45, he who sees me, sees the one who sent me. Just hold on, Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's an unbelievable statement. Have you ever thought about that? He's the image of the invisible God. Does that not strike you as a little odd? He's the icon, the image, the exact representation of God the Father in flesh. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Glory, glory, glory is all through here. And it brings us back to John 17. Jesus' work has been twofold. Number one, to represent God the Father. And secondly, to make purification of sins. One of the things that's important as we we study Jesus' prayer is is just to ask ourselves constantly, do we really understand who we're dealing with here? Do we really have a grasp of the identity of Christ? There should be nothing more interesting to a Christian than Jesus. Is he, does he, will he occupy your greatest interest? We have so many interests, don't we? I mean, I'm, I'm having to deal with my idols coming up in this next month. 
hunting and college football. And I was actually, all, all honesty, I was driving the car praying about that, saying, Lord, you know that this is a hard season for me because I get so distracted. Don't let anything become more interesting to me than your son. Easy to do, isn't it? Why don't we, can we, why, why don't we just encourage one another all the more to develop greater interest in our Savior? Turn over back to John for a second. We, we can't leave this so quickly. John chapter 12. Um, familiar words. We've looked at this over and over through this upper room discourse. It's so foundational. John chapter 12. And look at the glory. The glory that's happening. Jesus says, I've glorified you. What is he talking about ultimately? He's talking about his death on the cross. John 12, 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, this is the week before the last week of Jesus' life, from Bethsaida, Galilee, and began asking him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew, and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? To be glorified. What is he saying there? Now the hour has come. He'll say it again in chapter 13. He'll say it again in chapter 17. The hour has finally come after over and over saying, my hour is not here, my time is not at hand. Why is the hour at hand now? Because he was about to be sentenced to death and executed on a cross. Don't miss that that heinous, horrific, indescribable suffering is called by the Father and by the Son glorification. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's an analogy of him dying and what would happen after the resurrection. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Here it is again. It sounds just like John 17. Father, glorify your name. I love this. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it. A crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken. What does it mean when Jesus says, back in John 17, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What work is that? Obviously living a life of absolute dependent faithfulness on God the Father, but also finishing the work at the cross. The ultimate work he would do was ahead, only a few hours away. Prayer brought our Lord to give an account of his life and his faithfulness. Don't miss that. Prayer brought even Jesus to accountability. Prayer should do the same for us. It is impossible to stand in the presence of our Holy Father without a deep sense of our accountability. And for us, a deep sense of our need to confess and repent. For Jesus, 
It was an opportunity to say, I have done what you've told me to do. So as he's considering death, the first thing he does is he reviews his life. I've been with a lot of people in the last days and weeks of their life. Ministry just does that. You're with people and you see a lot of people enter into eternity. It is unanimous that everyone has a review of their own life as they come to a death they know they're facing. Same with Jesus. With Jesus. And his was a review of his faithfulness. We can say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Number two, and this is where it gets really, really interesting. A wistful request. A wistful or wishful, wishful request. Verse 5, now, Father, at this time, in other words, glorify me together with yourself. That's stunning enough. With what? With the glory which I had with you before the world was. If the disciples had their heads bowed at this moment, they were looking up. They were looking at one another. Did you hear what he just said? To read John 17, 5 is to fall into the deep end of the pool. And we see into the relationship of God the Father and God the Son and find ourselves lost in eternity past. This is unbelievable. Jesus says, I want it to be like it was before I came in swaddling clothes and was crying in a manger. I want it to be like it was before I was an embryo. I want it to be like before I became a human. No one prays like that except God. Who could pray that way except God? You want a proof for the deity of Christ? Look no further than John 17, 5. How can any human pray that? Have you ever, in all of your prayer meetings, heard anyone say anything similar to that? I hope not. If you have, please send them in for counseling. Now, when you see a glimpse of this, we have to look at this. What is this glory? What does this mean, glorify me with the way that I was with you before the world began? Turn back to John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 17. Because we get a glimpse of this glory visually through the lips of Matthew on what happened in Caesarea Philippi. A little north of Galilee. He takes his disciples away for a little retreat to get them away. That's where Jesus says, I mean, Peter says to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. God, uh, Jesus says back, flesh and blood did not reveal that. Only God the Father would do that. They have this amazing time of establishing the identity of Christ. Then Peter has this brief moment where he tries to talk Jesus out of the cross, for which he got this rebuke, Get thee behind me, Satan. Then six days later, verse 1 of chapter 17, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. I've been to that area. It's the, it's the highest ridge in that area. It would have been secluded from anyone. And he was, this is one of the strangest words in the Greek New Testament. He was transfigured. His flesh was peeled away before them. 
and his face was shiny. It was, it, was, it, was, it was like the sun. And his garments, his clothes, they became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Talk about wanting to eavesdrop on a conversation. What were they talking about? By the way, I have an idea. Moses said, show me your glory in Exodus chapter 33. Show me your glory. And God said, I will tell you my name. Moses was asking for something visual. God gave him something verbal, showing that God's a verbal God, but now he got his video. Now he got the visual. Peter said to Jesus, I just love this scene. You got Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking. I always want to know, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah, but that'll be in heaven. We'll have name tags. I don't know how they knew that was who they were. Hey, Moses, I... I'm Moses, hi, I'm Elijah, just want you to know we're going to talk to Jesus. I don't know, it doesn't, doesn't tell us. In the middle of that, who would you expect to interrupt the conversation? Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll build uh, three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's make this a permanent situation. While he was speaking, I love this. Peter interrupts Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah, and God interrupts Peter. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. That's interesting because the Greek is, 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 a, is a negative. Clouds aren't bright. Clouds are typically impeding light. This is a different kind of cloud. This had something translucent in it. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down, fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up, guys. Don't be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. They were coming down from the mountain. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. What did they see? They saw a quick glimpse of the transfiguration of the second person of the Trinity back into his pre-incarnate glory. Now, glory has two dimensions. We've talked about this before in Greek and in Hebrew, and they come together to make a beautiful, beautiful uh, a description of God's greatness. In the Old Testament, it's kavod. It's heaviness. It's weight. It's substance. It's something that's much heavier than it looks like. In the Greek New Testament, it's doxa, and it means light. Uh, it, it, was, it was a common word that meant to look at the sun. You look at the sun, you see doxa. It was Glory that you couldn't even look at. And by the way, we see in Revelation 1, Jesus was brighter than the sun in a description of his glory. Overwhelming brightness. Overwhelming gravitas and weight. Jesus is saying, I want to be like that again. Why? Now this is where it all comes together. Go over to Philippians chapter 2. 
really important real estate to connect with John 17.5. You know this passage well. Do nothing in Philippians 2. Do nothing from, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude, this humble attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the great passage from the Greek word for emptying, kenosis. We call it the kenosis, the emptying of God the Father and God the Son, where he voluntarily, very, very important, he voluntarily set aside the use of some of his divine attributes while he was on this planet. It describes it. Who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be bragged about or grasped. But here it is. He emptied himself. He laid aside his rights and privileges as God. Taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being in appearance, found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by become, becoming obedient to the point of death. Now we're back in John 17, 5. Even death on a cross for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Jesus has a name, Every knee will bow, those who are in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every time we'll confess, here comes Jesus' name. That Jesus Christ is who? He's Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Back to John 17, and here's the connection. That's called the great kenosis, the great emptying. In John 17, 5, Jesus is asking the Father to reverse the kenosis. It's amazing. And it'll happen in just a few hours. He's saying, I have walked on this earth in faithful, obedient humility. People walking by me as their creator, not even knowing who I was. I fulfill what you've called me to do. Now, please restore that glory and that fellowship that I enjoyed with you before the world began. What he laid aside in Philippians 2, God now restores at the resurrection. This brings up the concept of the eternal existence of God. God, I confess to you, I'm... Uh, I'm above my pay grade in discussing this. This is one of those categories of theology that's tough. If you think about it, when you think about God's eternity, I, I'm somewhat okay thinking about the eternity of God from now like forward, from now on. That, that, somehow that makes some sense to me. It never stops. But go that way. That God has always, always, forever been. You know, melt your brain, just think about that for a while. In the beginning, John says in the opening of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, that is Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. He was the agent of creation. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, according to John 1 and Colossians 1, 15 to 18, he was the one who created the world. John 8, 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Using the name of God. John 16, 28, I came forth from the Father, have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. A.W. Pink writes about the eternity of God. This is one of those quotes that I read for the first time in his little book, The Existence and Attributes of God, that just... I read it, I underlined it, I read it again, I highlighted it, I read it again, I started. I read it again and just said, wow. I put it down a few weeks later, read it again, I still read it again this week. Just, this blows me away. This short circuits, this is proof to me, this concept that God is God and I am not. Pink says, in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, there was a time, if time could be called, when God, in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three persons, dwelt all alone. There was no heaven where his glory is particularly manifested. No earth were to, to engage his attention. No angels to sing his praises. No universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing and no one but God. And that, not for a day, not for a year, or even an age, but from everlasting eternity. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, in need of nothing. Had a universe or angels or humans been necessary to him in any way, they also would have been called into existence from all eternity. Creating them, when he did, added nothing to God, essentially. He changes not, Malachi 3.6 says, therefore his essential glory can neither be augmented or diminished, end quote. I mean, can anyone just like, swallow that? Does that just make you go, you know, this is a wicked witch of the West moment. You know, I'm melting. You just got to stop. It's just way too much. He's always been. Always. Forever. Eternally. Backwards. Never beginning. Try teaching that to your little ones. <laughs> That's one of the things we don't understand, but we believe. He was for an eternity past, all alone, until he created the angels and the world and people. It does make you stop and pause and wonder and say, but eternity going forward, he's chosen to spend with us. How? By the death of his son that paid for sin so we can be in his eternal holy presence. This was no ordinary man 
praying some ordinary prayer. So, the Lord Jesus says, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And you know what? He did. And Romans 8 says, He stands for us in heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for the saints. Every time we sin, it's as if Jesus stays the Father's wrath and said, I died for that. Every time we need assistance, he is at the ready to ask the Father for the full force of God, three in one, one in three, to come to our assistance. And even when we pray wacky prayers, even when we pray prayers that don't make sense theologically, even when we pray prayers that don't make sense in this earth, in this time, Romans 8 also says the Spirit, he also prays for us with groanings too deep for words. I'm always interested with people who say they're doing spiritual prayer with too deep for words, how that, what they're actually doing. I think what that means is he takes our knuckle-headed prayers and turns those from our desire to glorify and honor God into a way that he blesses us with God's answers. We have stared, if just for a moment, into this relationship with the, within the Trinity. And as I said, the takeaway isn't go do this or that. The takeaway is just go, wow, what, what a God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Is he, Jesus Christ, the most interesting part of the occupation of any of your thoughts? Let's pray together. Lord, I, I confess that even trying to explain these concepts, I'm way beyond my ability to explain, cause to understand, because I, I can't fully grasp it. I so look forward to the day when faith will be sight and we'll spend the rest of eternity moving forward understanding the eternities and infinities of your greatness, your character. How grateful we are that our Savior was obedient to the point of death, who finished the course, who kept the faith, who now is glorified in heaven. Extract from our hearts, motivate our hearts to give Him worship to tell others about him. To be overwhelmed and obsessed with Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.